there is a differentiation between self-worth and DIY culture. And I think once you feel comfortable in both, it can stretch your personality. Once you actually know within yourself how you want to work, with who you want to work, on what basis you want to work, then people will also find you. To know our own fear is so important because we don't really want to come even near to differentiating what it is for us to be afraid. There is perhaps a, a whole set of uh, personal um, troubles that an individual is bringing. And, and one thing is to actually um, have a sense of what the story may be all about. Um, do I have enough capacity to, um, to tolerate that? You cannot heal others if you do not really apply the same um, uh, approach to yourself. Self-care is the key. That was a clip from today's guest. Um, everyone, I am super stoked on this, uh, on this one. You know, I talk a lot about uh, how I came up professionally before I got into what I do now. And, you know, a huge part of my story is uh, being a therapist and working in addiction and mental health. And I love having people on the show who've got that background, who've got that same background. And today's guest is someone who's both a super old friend of mine and also someone who comes from that world and is really just a very inspirational, cool person. This is a great episode. So uh, thanks for joining us. And I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Before we get to it, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. My name is Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Welcome to the show. Hello, and thanks for having me. Heck yeah. All right. So for the uninitiated, for those who don't know, who are you and what do you do? Let's start with the identity, because um, that comes with the name. I'm Patricia Jackson, um, and my story and my life story begins, or begins in Poland. Uh, I spent half of my life there. I was born and raised in Poland, and I think that also shaped the person that I am today. Um, and 20 years ago, I moved to this country, which is England, London. So what do you do professionally? I'm a Jungian analyst, um, which is um, a very specific type of working with the psyche, because that actually indicates that there is a deeper layer that binds all of us together. Um, and I tend to, uh, with my clients, go very deep to this area to see what's happening at the core, at the base of human psyche before we will start seeing it, um, the personality on the higher levels of the psyche. So I'm a Jungian analyst. So as a starting point, that sounds outrageous, super cool. I can't wait to get <laughs> into it. Uh, just from a practical point of view, do you have a private practice or do yeah. you work? Okay. It was not like that to start with um, because um, before you will actually uh, jump headfirst into um, private practice and working with clients on one and one basis, you need to have lots of years of training, supervision, professional training, supervision, and, uh, and also personal work. There's almost like two streams. You work on yourself 
and you work on shaping your um, uh, professional attitude to uh, your clients. That's the, that's the professional training. Um, and I started by working in institutions because then you've got variety of clients. Um, you work with people from different ethnicities, um, different social groups, uh, with different, they are bringing different mental disorders to, to the consulting room. So that gives you an overview on how you can work with them, um, what sort of techniques you can apply to a specific areas of work. Uh, but then when uh, a transition came and I became a mother, a big transition in my life, I decided that I want to work with my clients differently. And I think with my own personal change came also uh, a personal change. And I started to apply some of the adjustments to the way I was working. And now I practice from home. Amazing. Um so let's get into that, to the profession. So Jungian analyst, how do you explain that to someone over a coffee? If someone's like, hey, what do you do and what does it actually mean to do that? How would you explain that? When Freud and Jung together started to shape um, the beginning uh, of, um, historically speaking, uh, the discovery of the consciousness basically started um, with those two individuals paving the um, model of the psyche together. Um, Freud um, stopped at the level of um, individual unconscious. So consciousness and then underneath was this huge sack which we, he called the individual un uh, unconsciousness. Jung went almost one layer deeper and he said that underneath that uh, that layer of our psyche, there is also something which he called the collective unconsciousness. And that in this model, which he developed, is, is bonding all of us together. And he placed archetypes there. Um, so when I work with clients, I am very much interested of searching that area and to look in what is happening in the psyche uh, on that level. So something that I always find totally fascinating when people go from working in an, or in an industry and they go from working in an organization and then working from themselves to that transition. So you'd mentioned part of it and maybe the initiating factor was becoming a mother. Was there in that transition, was there anything about learning how to become like a business person? Because you went from working in an organization to now having a business. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that there is also something about shaping um, the environment the way you want and maybe um, creating a healthy atmosphere, atmosphere, nourishing environment as you would uh, as, as a parent for your child. Um, and um, I was also thinking about bringing that uh, mindset, the framework um, of creating something nourishing not only for your clients who are there for nourishment, but also for yourself. Um, and I think the intentionality was always my key, how to shape this environment so I can actually thrive in it myself. So if we go to the, the idea of working in something like a system, like a big system, and then stepping outside of that, 
you know, once you have a body of work and you've you've become known in an industry and you know how to do it, it's you know, it's a bit safer, but it's still a huge leap of faith. So how did you find that in you to go out on your own? Wow, let me just think about it. Personal integrity. Personal integrity, which then you can transmit um, via yourself into your environment. And maybe that, that is slightly um, idealistic point of view, but I think it works once you actually know within yourself how you want to work, with who you want to work, on what basis you want to work, then people will also find you. And, you know, very often you hear this as a sort of um, cliché in, 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 in the working environment, but it actually works. So there is something that you transmit as an individual which people with their readiness eventually connect to and they come and find you. Uh, I love that and I, I totally agree. So I'm not uh, sure how it would work in the, in the UK, uh, but in Canada, there are kind of general standards for how someone should charge if they're gonna have a, a private practice. And then, but you can charge beyond that. You can kind of set your own price. Is it the same here? Yeah. So what about charging your worth? Mm -hmm. And how do, you, how do you figure that out for yourself? I had an amazing experience many years ago when I was in my financial transition myself. And I felt overloaded with work. And I went to see my supervisor and she said to me, charge double. And I said to her, you must be out of your mind. You're crazy. I don't feel ready as a person to be actually worthing myself according to this new scale you're proposing. And she said, well, if you want to stop the process, then send a message to the client that your worth is now this and that. And they, if you want to be rejected, they will reject you. If this is what you want to create for yourself, um, and it was almost like a professional experiment, but an amazing um, life lesson I received from her. And I did. I started to charge double and the amount of clients I received was phenomenal. I thought it, it, it's going to stop the process, but it actually accelerated the process. Because what actually happened psychologically within myself was that I needed to catch up with my own self-worth. Mm, that is amazing. Uh, I'm going to make a punk analogy, if I can. Go for it. Um, so, <laughs> you know, like, when we both were coming up in punk and hardcore, we have that archetype of, like, pay, like, the, like make your product and charge the littlest amount mm. possible, and show should be the littlest amount possible. And... I love that on the community aspect. It's like we want everything we do to be ultra accessible. Yeah. And it's a, punk is such a great life lesson for how to get things done mm -hmm. and to like kind of put yourself in, into new situations and really figure things out. Mm -hmm. But where it's not a great lesson is like how do you value your yeah. your worth? Mm -hmm. And it's like, do I think Minor Threat should have been charging like some crazy amount of money for their records? No. But I do think that one of the lessons you can learn from a band like Minor Threat is how to get things done, how to create your yeah. own community, your own network. But as a professional, you should get very comfortable with charging an appropriate amount for your services and not undercutting yourself. I'm with you on that. There is a differentiation between self-worth 
and DIY culture. And I think once you feel comfortable in both, it can stretch your personality and bring you to um, different sides of yourself without underestimating one side of yourself um, or, or overestimating the other side of yourself. DIY was great. DIY was um, this moment in my life when I really felt that you can achieve with the sense of communal uh, collaboration anything you want and people would support you. Um, which may not necessarily translate to what self-worth is because that's a different, uh, different definition. A different part of yourself would have to be activated to go into self-worth. There might be a bridge between them. I'm interested, you know, what your opinion on that might be. But they are not the same, they are not the same um, aspects of our life. Yeah, I, I agree. So I can't speak to anyone else's like punk experience, I guess is the term I'd use. But um, I found punk and hardcore because I grew up in a, a chaotic uh, home, very chaotic. And I experienced a ton of adversity, just like bullying and like tough stuff. And I found punk and hardcore as a total refuge. Yeah. And I dove, solace, a complete solace. Yeah, complete mm -hmm. solace. And I dove headfirst into the um, DIY community aspect mm -hmm. and not at all into the self-worth side of it. Right. And I didn't really get to that side of like taking care of myself until mm -hmm. I was much older. I think it was part of my um, my journey via hardcore as well. But I, I was able to pick on this healing aspect that scene provided because once you have and you can really comfortably land um, into the belonging, mm. to belong, especially that you share, you know, most of um, punk kids, they are coming from very um, diverse and sometimes very troubled backgrounds. And when they found themselves in the space which actually holds them and some sort of nourishment is provided via punk rock because they are not judged, they are supported by their mates, they can um, very often um, uh, activate this creative spark in them, playing music, um, you know, creating zines, taking pictures at shows. Um, and this creativity and the sense of belonging was, for me, the key attribute, which then brings you farther in your own development. Yeah, totally. Um, so if you're thinking about your job and how you work with clients and, and help clients, and they help you, you build your relationship, uh, how would you juxtapose that with, with punk and hardcore and what you learned from there? Very often my, my clients are coming with almost the same life motif they are lost and they are traumatized. And because I went through the same journey as many hardcore punk kids, your journey is also touching upon coming from a problematic, you know, family system, family background. You do have a sense of actually spotting that they might just need a little bit of differentiation of who actually, who they are as individuals and to help them to connect to that sense of knowing that there is something in them which is great, which is, which is amazing, 
because they've been, um, you know, what ha whatever happened to the individuals. They could be traumatized, they could be bullied, they could be raped, they could be part of whatever adversity happened in their life. Once you are able to scoop them up and say, okay, you know, let's, let's work with you on that level. Who are you and who you meant to be in your life? Um, I think that's always the key of balancing a person. So when people have come to a place where they want to start working on, on their stuff, uh, as you know, it can be really challenging, it can be overwhelming because like, where do I go? Do I go to a community service? Do I go to a, a therapist? And also, you know, what kind of therapy? So from your perspective, what's a way that someone who's just thinking about doing some personal work or getting some help, how, what are some of the first steps that they could take to find their way through that kind of process? Recognizing that they do need help mm -hmm. because that's very often this initial pull that eventually will help them cross the threshold. Um, we quite often don't seek help because we don't even say to ourselves that we do need it. Once you recognize that there is something problematic in your life and you can address it, you have to differentiate that within yourself and say, okay, I need help now. And how would someone know or having an opinion about what kind of service they should have. So for example, the kind of work that you do, if someone, like why would someone go to someone who offers your specific, because you offer something so specific, why would they go to that versus something else? That's a, a very um, complicated question, but a great question. Um, because most of the people, they don't really know what sort of services are there and how they can actually use and benefit from each specific angle. Most of the time, is um, it, that's just a chance, something random, which we as Jungians don't really believe, because there is always this layer that brings us together. So if you have a person in your practice, we actually say that you receive a patient uh, that you need and not that you want to receive because the growth always happens on both sides of the relationship, professional relationship. The person that comes, walks through the door is also um, a person that will one way or in one way or another influence you. You know what, I, I'm also thinking that um, this is an amazing question with entire psychotherapeutic world. We would really have to face that because we don't really have a professional perso persona as psychotherapists, which means that we don't really have this um, differentiated business card which we can put on the table and people can actually read and say, do I need to go to cognitive behavioral therapist? Do I need to go to uh, a Jungian analyst? Do I need to uh, seek for more Kleinian oriented um, psychotherapy? We we, we don't really have that type of professional business card which will be a shortcut in relation-making process between us and, um, and people who seek for help. Um, and perhaps that is also something we need to work on. How do, we, how do we create that bridge with people? I love what you're saying. Like, so specifically when 
and I believe you, I believe you know this, but uh, so when I was working as a therapist, I did uh, CBT, I did cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. And when people, whenever people in my job now as a, as a coach, a business coach mm -hmm. and leadership coach, whenever they talk to me about therapy and they say, well, I'm gonna go to a therapist. And I always say, well, what kind of therapy do you wanna to go to? And I think like most people know there's different kinds of therapy, but it's kind of like, I'm gonna take my car to the mechanic. Well, what for? Like, do you need to go to brakes? Do you need a transmission? Mm -hmm. And whenever, so whenever I ask that question, what do you want to get? What do you, um, what kind do you want to go for? They always say, well, geez, I don't know. What, what should I go for? Mm -hmm. And I, I really encourage anyone who's thinking about going to get any kind of help. A, yes, awesome. That's great. And it's like, it's not a one size fits all. Like you should do a little bit of research. And also when they start their journey, um, they may look at the level of the personality on this very um, top layer. Um, I'm in the crisis now. Uh, I have suicidal tendencies now. Uh, I don't really know how to get myself out of the problematic relationship now. So now may be um, suitable for someone who seeks more cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, Crisis intervention is another modality which would be good for now. But when you look at the whole model of the psyche, those now-oriented problems, they do have root in a person. They do have root in previous stages of person's development. And CBT may not be enough for that yeah. um, layer of uh, personality which was wounded before. So with more um, psychodynamic oriented modalities you would look into what happens uh, at the core of the problem formation. Yeah. And that's um, quite often a longer oriented psychotherapeutic process. You have to be quite engaged and determined because we, um, we sometimes work with clients for five, ten years and that's great. Yeah. It's a process. So you're developing uh, along uh, the, the therapy. Mm -hmm. So you're growing, you know, with, with yourself within the framework, within the therapeutic framework. Yeah, totally. I, I love that you differentiated that. Um, I went through a really difficult period of my life, which, which you know uh, very much about. And I, I want to uh, get to something that you played a big role in, in helping me do in regards to that. I went through a really difficult period of time and right when it all kind of like popped off, when everything was really difficult, I literally just typed trauma counselor into Google. That's how I found, although I came from this background, I'm like, I don't know who to talk to. Yeah. So I type in trauma counselor and I found this guy named Christian Monks who like, like literal actual lifesaver. Mm -hmm. And I worked with Christian for two years. I went and saw him every week for two years. And that idea of like long-term therapy, I love that you talked about that and differentiated like, hey, if it's a now problem, mm -hmm. you're probably looking for like a quick outcome, something that's like very structured, intended to create quick results, which uh, I was working in addiction at the time. Mm -hmm. Exactly, right? Boom, you wanna create really quick results. And I love that you brought up the idea that therapy can be, and in some cases should be a long-term a long process. Like, yeah, of course. However, on like TV, movies and everything can kind of make that like long-term therapy thing seem kind of like whingy and like, oh, that person. But it's like, 
Well, no, like you have a long-term relationship with your, your doctor and you have a long-term relationship with all sorts of things that are helpful. So why wouldn't you do that therapeutically? And that is also helping you in understanding how you can assist yourself through crossing um, major developmental stages because you're changing. So when you start a therapy, you may have a, a whole set of problems to differentiate and to overcome at the beginning. Then you will change. You transform as a person. You will have a better sense and understanding of who you are in relation to yourself, to your family, to the society, to the loved ones, to the environment as well. And, um, and it's, it's a process. So you're growing alongside with um, with your therapist, um, observing how those changes are occurring in yourself um, and allowing that process to flow. Yeah. I think that's really important to, to place it in the context of the process, which is um, it's a very living thing. It's alive. It's, it's not a framework. It's something that is touching your soul. Mm -hmm. So it has to be alive. It has to be long-term oriented. Although endings are also very important. Mm -hmm. And, and how to do the, the good ending is the key of good psychotherapy. Yes, I, I love that you're bringing that up. What can you tell us about having good endings? When you're ready, um, you know, and your psyche knows. Um, quite often in therapy, there is almost um, a mythical ending dream. Uh, so you can see how the person and the conscious eye is tapping to the wisdom which is coming from the deep level of the psyche, from the unconscious. And when the dream comes, quite often, that's this moment when you know, ah, you know, they arrived to this coherent level of themselves when they, uh, they can go and challenge and face challenges outside of themselves without the need of having... Um, a good object in the form of psychotherapist because they, they, they do have now an internalized image of a psychotherapist so they do have a capacity to have this ongoing dialogue within themselves um, which is a stretching aspect of the personality really um, and I think that's also this moment when you know how to cross the threshold um, and without stopping, without um, having a good ending, you will be in one way or another um, uh, kept within the um, uh, sphere, the space with another, which is your therapist. But all rites of passages across many different cultures, they speak about this moment when uh, a candidate a warrior uh, needs to differentiate and separate from um, wh whoever was guiding the person thus far. And then you need to do the jump yourself. You have to have enough integrity within yourself to say, now it's my time. Yeah, I love that. So I know this is a very big topic and I'm, you know, I, I take it whatever direction you want. You'd brought up this notion of the collective unconscious, which fascinating like super cool could you tease that out more for for the audience like explain in whatever way you're comfortable about what it is and how that w really connects to the work that you do so in Jungian model of the psyche 
we do place um, archetypes on that um, collective unconscious level. And if you think about archetype, when you hear the word, it combines two patterns together. Archetype is something that is archaic and typical. So it's the oldest part of our psyche, older than consciousness itself. And it's archa so it's archaic and it's typical. That means that it goes across the, um, uh, the humankind. So everyone has it. A good example of an archetypal expression are fairy tales that are bringing an archetypal message across the culture which can be um, similar. So you may have an archetype of the hero which one culture organizes fairy tales, stories uh, in, in, in specific way in Japan or in Mexico or, uh, or in Middle East they will have an archetype of the hero that is dressed in a specific form. So stories are touching, coming from the unconscious, from the root of the archetype, through the cultural, and then to the individual. Um, think about Star Wars. An I, amazing, I, I do all the time. Amazing example of the hero journey based on the um, Joseph Campbell story who was very deeply influenced by, um, by Jung. So you do have this um, incredible story of a Jedi warrior that is passed and the knowledge and the mysticism of that connection to, uh, to, the, um, uh, to the source which, uh, which they call Force. The force. The force is an, is, is an amazing expression of an archetype of the self. Um, so how does that connect to the work that you do with clients? I do uh, listen to the individual stories and uh, I try to differentiate in which myth are they currently in. Um, are they in um, a redemption story? Are they in um, a sacred marriage story? Are they in an ugly duckling story? And then I would see via that differentiation of the personal narrative, I would go deeper and then deeper and then see how to bring something that was potentially uh, traumatized in them as person back to the source using the Campbellian or uh, you know, the, the terminology from the Star Wars, how to connect them back to the Force, yeah, to the it. Source, to the original wholeness, mm -hmm. no matter how you're going to call it. Um, so if you just say, again, it's a big question, what's the goal of your work? What's the goal of your work? Consciousness. Consciousness. But what does that mean? I will base it within the Jungian model of the psyche. Mm -hmm. So at the base, you have... Uh, always the unconscious and from that consciousness is being born uh, and during the process many disturbances may happen development happens itself it doesn't really have to be pejorative it can be actually uh, very positive development happens the personality needs to be differentiated from the unconsciousness 
And the more you're able to differentiate, the more conscious you're becoming. Mm. So it's a process of discrimination, really. You're trying to differentiate what's mine and what, what's, what's um, unconscious. You brought up uh, trauma earlier, people experiencing trauma. And something that I have noticed over the past you know, many years, so there's like a common usage of words that typically would have been within more of like the helper's wor world. Mm -hmm. Uh, like archetypes or trauma or and, you know and, and many many others, and I think it's great that people share a common language around health. That's that's mm -hmm. awesome. But where I I think it it gets a little sticky is when people knowing what they want to work on and how they want to work on it, and maybe having too almost too much information yeah. that they're bringing into it. So how do you manage people's experience? with you and and the work that you do how do you manage that with all of this information that they might have gotten about trauma or health or any of these things from outside sources in terms of um overflowing me yeah like kind of like it would bang heads with the process or create contradictions within the work that you would do but maybe we could try to differentiate what is the nature of the question because look uh, on one side there is an intensity of someone's trauma uh, and there is perhaps uh, a whole set of uh, personal um, troubles that an individual is bringing. And, and one thing is to actually um, have a sense of what the story may be all about. Um, do I have enough capacity to, um, to tolerate that and to welcome a person with everything they are bringing. Hmm? That's one thing. Another thing is contradiction. Yeah? Because someone can um, uh, come to your practice and they may have a political agenda yeah. which con contradicts your political agenda. And that is a slightly different angle of approaching this question because once you are um, integrated within yourself, you can you can welcome this person and establish a dialogue uh, knowing that they are not crossing your boundaries because you're good can i give you an example from my world mm -hmm. so I, I work with a, a lot of senior leaders in, in many different industries and of course there's like so much philosophy about leadership and so many speakers and so many coaches and i'm sure there's there's a lot there's something out there for everyone there's nothing nothing wrong with having it but what I'll come up against sometimes is people will have this kind of toolkit they've put together from like 50 different sources mm. and they've stitched together something that has tons of contradictions in it mm. in itself. Mm. And when we get into our work, it's not a barrier, mm. but it's uh, it's extra. It's too much extra. Mm. And very recently I had to said, I said to a client, you need to pick which direction you want to go with this mm. because I don't want to have to be in a position where you or I have to justify mm. the ideas that we're talking about against mm. the past 20 years of your career. Mm. So if the philosophy that you've got right now has been working for you, great, go with mm. that. Find someone who works in, in that area and run with that. That's totally awesome. 
If you want to play in the space of newer ideas or different ideas, great, let's do that. But let's not create an attack defend kind of scenario about how I can justify my work with you versus all these things you worked on for 20 years. And it's not that I find it frustrating or, or say like only the ideas I work with are the only valid ones. It's that there's such a, um, people have so much access to material now mm -hmm. that I find it can confuse a conversation rather than clarify a conversation. It's like the, um, the paradox of choice, too much choice, mm -hmm. too many ideas doesn't mean you've got cleaner thinking or, or, or more uh, focused thinking. It cr can create a confusion and mist mm -hmm. mistiness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, maybe there is also, um, a beauty in um, having different personalities around and a beauty uh, which comes with being contradictive because if you know how to approach it well you can also think about it as a stretch you know we're not here to only work with people we like I actually think that um, challenging uh, encounters are very often coming from those relationships who are on the other side of what I like. Mm. That is your stretch. I, I, I like what you're saying. Mm. I really like what you're saying. I have, I find myself, the further I am in my career, my, I don't want to say my patience, maybe I should say, my patience is, is shorter for people that I have to bring along too much. Right. Uh, in my body of work, I like when someone shows up ready to do the work rather than mm. trying to pull them along into the work and, and earn it and get them there. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of validity, not validity, but, and there's a lot of validity to what you're saying. Maybe that's a good place where I can stretch myself, get back to, you know, take back some patience. But also, um, do you know, on the, um, on the other hand, you do have a choice. Mm. You do have a choice in how you want to create the environment for you. Your modality may be slightly different than my modality. I'm, I'm, my modality, I'm not going to say I'm accepting uh, this, this, this and that patient. And if you are uh, uh, bringing another type of um, uh, psychological occurrence to my consulting room, I'm not going to work with you. Although, um, that differentiation once happened in my personal growth and, and professional uh, uh, formation. When I became a mother, I was very conscious about the difficulty I came across when I was working with pedophiles. And that was this moment when I very consciously um, said to myself that I cannot do this work because there was too much entanglement and too much um, transference, which I found very difficult. So knowing what you can and what you want um, is also a key factor. You, you do have um, freedom to say, this is the avenue I'm not going to be exploring. There are other people to do it. So you brought up something that I, I think is super important. I appreciate you brought it up. Should everyone, no matter what, have the opportunity to get help? Absolutely. I, I really do believe in the power of healing. And I really do believe that we might be lost. We might be confused. We are coming from um, very different backgrounds. And um, once I 
encountered the intensity of uh, criminal psychopathology, it's beyond anything I could possibly imagine in terms of darkness. And on one hand, you can really try to go into this discourse thinking, uh, are they victims here or they are creators of an evil? I don't know. Perhaps this is also the combination of both. Um, but from the healing or therapeutic perspective, I do strongly believe that everyone deserves help. In one case, it's like a, a simple conversation, like, yes, definitely. And then in the other case, it could be like a complex. Most of the time, it is complex. Uh, when we speak about deep um, psychopathology, um, we're speaking about factors that sometimes occurs on the brain level. Um, we're speaking about family um, patterns that are very difficult to overcome or to even break, to, to, to work with them, to make them more plastic. The, the plasticity of such pattern can be very difficult to achieve. Therefore, the transformation is very difficult to achieve. And the question you have to expose yourself to in moments like that is how much time you can give yourself as an individual to work with individuals like that. Um, so that brings us to a topic I'm really interested in for you. What about self-care uh, as a practitioner? Number one topic. Hmm. You cannot heal others if you do not really apply the same um, uh, approach to yourself. Self-care is the key. You cannot work with consciousness if you do not care about your own consciousness. So how do you take care of yourself? I go and um, I'm allowing myself to be held by nature. Mm. Mm. To soothe myself in nature is my number one um, tool, which I'm giving myself. And that's a real gift. That's a real decision when you say, now, this is what I need. And now, this is what I'm going to give to myself. Veganism, another big one. It's, it can be a radical self-help, self-care, self-help as well. How you differentiate the harm that has been created um, in the world, in the environment, uh, between humankind and uh, animals, um, and how much you want or you do not want to participate in that. So you do it for others, but if you will think about uh, all the um, death that you then consume and you are making that decision that I want to make it part of my system, uh, that's, that's problematic. So to, to spot that and to differentiate that, that I just don't really want to create that relationship between my world and, uh, and the death that comes from outside, that's a radical self-help. Yeah, heck yeah. Um, so how good are you at talking with other people, uh, friends, family, anyone that you go to, sharing about your own challenges? Are you someone that is comfortable sharing or are you someone that kind of keeps it in? No. You can't keep it in. Mm -hmm. I mean, the tendency quite often is like, I'm good. Mm -hmm. But 
you're you're becoming more and more neurotic when you do not share uh, because you want to step into your persona as someone who's good. I think what makes us human is this fundamental uh, reality that we are also in the process of our own transformation and our own development. And without obstacles, without uh, stress, without speaking about our own personal traumas, we are two-dimensional. We need to be three-dimensional. So that's this realness that you are actually integrating back to your personality because um, you're not a god which uh, presents itself to the world as this perfect figure who uh, who has you know all your shit together. Can I say that? Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so can I share something with you about how you've helped me? Uh, I think I know exactly where that was, and um, and this is really um, perhaps important to, to also give back to you that this was between me and you one of the deepest conversation when I really felt connected to you. But you go on. I was a Barcelona. Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so for everyone who's who who wouldn't know this part of it is you know so uh, both Patricia and I we've known each other for 20 years yeah ish and, and maybe more than that maybe more you know? yes and uh, we met in Poland when my band at the time was uh, playing a show there it was a first show in Poland and uh, I said hello because you were wearing a Texas is the reason shirt and I yes. was like that's so <laughs> sick that's awesome and shout out to Texas is the reason and uh, you and, and that whole crew of people have gone on to become lifelong friends. Um, many years later in Barcelona, I'd gone through a very, was going through a very, very difficult period of my life. And I had made this kind of, I was like, the only way I could handle anything was just like, just bring everything inside. And it was a time in my life where I, I really, distanced myself from almost everyone I knew, became very quiet, only spoke to a few people. And I'd found through music, but also just through my professional career, I was really spread out. I knew tons of people. I knew a lot of people who I guess I would have said like, oh, so-and-so is my friend, but they, it's not that they aren't a nice person or that we don't have uh, warmth towards each other, but they're not like friendships. They're just music friends, right? I went through this really difficult period that isn't just about one situation. It was a bunch of things all kind of popped off all at once, including some like really heavy stuff with my family. And I just shrunk back into myself hard. And I became very um, angry and extremely anxious. And uh, I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want to say anything to anyone. And I started coming out of it a little bit uh, by putting myself out there a little bit more. I'd gone to be gone to therapy for a few years. And here we are in Barcelona and my band is playing its second show. Our second show is in Barcelona at a festival, uh, which just was wild. And out of anyone, you said to me, are you going to talk about this thing? And I said, no, I'm not going to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want, I don't want to put myself in that position anymore. I don't think, I don't, I don't think I can talk about it and do a good job which kind of was a surface level maybe thing, but more is I don't want to talk about it because I'm afraid of talking about it. I'm afraid of being in that discourse and I'm afraid of being attacked. 
I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of like, I can't keep it together. And you were so firm, but, but gentle with me in that conversation of like, you need to do this. And as a result, I've gone on to like speak pretty openly about that whole thing. And it's been, I hope, good for anyone who's heard it. I've had many people speak to me about it afterwards and be like, wow, I'm so glad you talked about that. Um, It was a huge thing. So thank you, because that's what I needed to hear uh, from from a friend at the time. This is an an amazing example that is showing how we understand our defenses. What happens when we shrink? when we um, close all our doors and windows because it's it's too painful to come outside with the intensity of feeling that we really want to um, split off from the world and perhaps from ourselves Um, but um, but that creates a cauldron that's that creates this empty space in which nothing happens. So there there has to be some sort of movement. And very often the movement comes within when you are sitting still with the intensity of difficulty and trauma on your own. And then when you're ready, you start opening your doors and windows and you start sharing. And so your personal healing can then touch other people uh, because your difficulty can be an inspiration for other people. Because your healing process uh, can also touch other people. And that's very um, brave decision to make. When is a good moment to come out and, and actually start speaking about it. I remember this moment in Barcelona when I said to you, um, you have to speak about it. Just to introduce a bit of a movement uh, to this tense space, which um, is helping you to survive, but it also be, be, it, it can become a prison mm-hmm. for your own self. It, which it had. And there's two things I'm going to say, I'll say about it. The first is you're very good because I'm, I'm used to speaking to people. So I'm very good at getting myself out of, out of conversations that I don't want to be in. Mm. And I'm really good at like moving, moving a topic or whatever. And you're very good at not letting me do that. <laughs> you totally, you really kept me. But this was, I think it was a shared feeling for me to feel your anxiety and for you to feel my firmness. Because I felt at some uh, few moments of our conversation that I really needed to reach for that wounded part of yourself and bring it back uh, to the conversation, uh, which is a very um, gentle dance because you must never force. But if you feel that there is a window of opportunity, and I felt that you were defending yourself, but you were also ready. There was this part of you which was ready, maybe not on the conscious level, but I really felt, okay, you know, you can heal that. You really can heal that. I'm not all all the way there, but I'm in a way better space about it. Um, So the second part I'll share is like 
four days later. So we're out on this tour. That was the first show of that tour. We're out on this tour and um, someone comes up to me in Prague, I think, and, said, and wants to talk about it. And first words out of my mouth are, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And it was someone that I had never met before and said, I don't want to talk about it. And they just said, well, I'd really like to talk to you about it. And I said, okay. And then I had this, it, what was interesting for me, or not interesting, super relieving. I was like, I don't want to talk about it because I was like, I don't want to talk about this because I'm afraid of this conversation. And really once I, once I got past okay and the person started talking, they were so kind and so, so cool. And we had such a wonderful conversation. And from that, like a few weeks later, we're on tour and we're in Portland and my friend Rudy came up. I hadn't seen Rudy in years. And he was like, I want to talk to you about this. I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in like five or six years. And again, I was like, I don't want to talk about it. And he was like, dude, come on. And I was like, okay. And we ended up having this really great conversation about it. And since then, it kind of like opened up the doors where I've been able to not like gratuitously talk about it. Like, I don't want to be like, you know, for all the reasons I, I, I want to be like cautious and appropriate about how I talk about things, but it's, I feel from conversation to conversation, I've been able to do it better and better with like more like openness and, and um, I feel I've been able to do it in a way that I, I, as I hope is helpful to anyone that, that that whole thing mattered to, uh, but I wouldn't have been able to do that or maybe it would have taken me longer unless we'd had that conversation. But man, I was like, I don't want to talk to you about this right now. And you hit me with it in such a wonderful and kind way, but like super firm and uh, it was good. And I appreciate it. Thank you for saying this. Um, but I also wonder if you can hear yourself because you are saying something very important. I was afraid mm -hmm. to talk about it. Mm -hmm. To know our own fear is so important because we don't really want to come even near to differentiating what it is for us to be afraid. And how do we, how do we welcome our um, deepest shadow? What is it that we are the most afraid of? And to come into a, an intimate relationship with our own darkness. We were talking about uh, what's the most important aspect of my work and I said consciousness. You cannot achieve consciousness without knowing your darkness. Mm -hmm. So simultaneously, you're working on those two levels together. Um, how can you introduce consciousness, the light, and how can you actually face your darkness? Uh, it's interesting you say that because, you know, coming up in punk and hardcore, especially the kind of punk and hardcore that we came up in, positive hardcore, like, like important ideas, lots of like really um, politically radical ideas. Uh, it's very easy to kind of fall into this trope of me and everyone I know are good people. And everyone else who doesn't agree with us are bad people or at very worse, they're, they're neutral. Mm -hmm. And to kind of fall into these like categories of good person, bad person, these are the lost people who are kind of neutral. And going through like true life challenge, like really, it's funny because up to that point, I thought I'd had like a difficult life. And, and then I hit about a five year period where it was like, no, this is what a real nightmare is. Understanding what I need to work on and what I actually like, what is the dark, the dark side of myself and what I need to work on. 
and then what is like the good stuff that's like the actual good stuff not just these like punk politics that i thought were represented who i was it was good it was i mean it's been a it's been a terrible situation uh, or terrible period of my life but a really good to go through that process but it's also crazy that i was in my 40s before i went i didn't learn about myself until i was in my 40s so i wanted to to thank you for that because that was such an important part of of that whole thing of my whole journey with that but also just an important part of my life to be with someone that i like love i respect but also for that person who literally lives like on another continent i only see once every few years to be like let's talk about this because it was a time in my life where people are like let's not talk about this and i was like let's do one better let's not talk about it and let's not talk like i want to like go hide so uh you you really you did something that was profound for me and i'll never forget it that's what friendship is mm -hmm, totally yeah time and space may be um uh, generating different factors for us but there is also this um very important meeting which happens for me on a very different dimension it, it it's great if you have a friend you can hang out uh, every day and meet at your favorite coffee spot but that's not this type of meeting I'm talking about. When you meet someone, you know, and you really see this person for who they are in this given moment uh, in their life and in also my life. Because um, I really deeply remember this conversation we had. And I thought it was amazing to actually meet you on that level hmm? with your vulnerability, which you also needed to have to soothe yourself, to defend yourself, because there was a wounded part inside. So the, the, um, you see, that's interesting how we speak about um, defenses, because they do have double factor in our development. They protect, but they also imprison us. Totally. If you are able to look at the defenses from those dual perspectives, you can see uh, why we do have them and when is a good moment uh, to separate ourselves from the defense. When is a good moment to say, thank you very much, not anymore. And that, that idea of like something being a prison was totally what had what it, what it happened. Uh, and then from talking about it is when I was able to be like, okay, I, don't, I don't need, I don't need to, to, to hold this in anymore. So let's go, let's go to you specifically. So you'd mentioned earlier, you lived half of your, your life in Poland. Mm. So love to know about like where you grew up specifically. And then also what was your introduction of punk and hardcore? So I lived in a very Eastern part of Poland, uh, in the place which is, uh, in the oldest European forest. Uh, called Białowieża Forest. I am so very proud of being born in this place. Um, the other forest, which is as ancient as Białowieża Forest, is Amazonia Forest in Brazil. Um, it's, it's the forest you can picture when you read fairy tales. Dense, deep, big animals, bisons, wolves, elks, foxes, you meet all, all of those creatures there. And so I remember when I was uh, a child, I used to go in the woods with my parents and I could see 
uh, a herd of 100 bison just in front of me crossing. And that would give me this understanding of who I am as a person within the environment um, when I was meeting those big creatures. So bison is my spirit animal, for sure. Um, and I was just really amazed how nature can teach you, what nature can give you, and how nature can shape your personality. And it certainly shaped mine. Now, uh, this place of my origin uh, is also a great uh, mix of cultural uh, lineages and backgrounds. So if you think of Poland, it is uh, predominantly a, a white Catholic country. Uh, the area I was born was influenced by um, Orthodox Christianity, uh, Turks, uh, Jewish communities, uh, and, uh, and lots of um, uh, minorities which um, coexisted in one place together. So from very early on, I was exposed to a variety of different folk tales of different languages, of different um, uh, religious beliefs um, or just um, spiritual beliefs. And I think that was really um, a nourishing place to grow up in. And I was quite often tapping onto that healing element of my upbringing when I needed to face um, differences, adversities, um, uh, challenges that were coming from my family system mm? or from the schooling. This was always my solace. Nature is always my solace. Um, earlier on when you were asking me about what do I do for self-care, nature is what I do for self-care. Being uh, in nature tapping into nature, um, gifting myself moments when I can just go back to Mother Earth, for sure. So in this place, um, growing up there, having these experiences, what was the thing that brought you or exposed you first to something that we have a shared passion for, punk mm. and hardcore? How did you find that or how did it find you? I am coming from this very obscure place in uh, Poland. Um, where punk was uh, quite big, actually. And um, my cousin was in a band, uh, and he was even holding a title of um, being a, a, a king of the punk scene. <laughs> so I remember going to school as a little kid, seeing the graffiti on the block, uh, stating his name, and then saying, the king of punks. So there was a status already there. Uh, and the first show I attended, um, I was 14. The band was called Necrobestiality. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> I had no idea what it even meant. <laughs> And I actually found out the meaning of necrobestiality when I was um, going into the deep psychopathology during mm -hmm. my studies, because mm -hmm. I had no idea what, uh, what is the meaning of the band. 
but this was my initiation into the punk and it was amazing. I probably was one of the, the, the smallest kids uh, there. Uh, so I've seen a lot and the music was, um, I, I felt driven. It was ecstatic. It, it was certainly an initiation. I felt um, that there was such an amazing expression of freedom. And to see all the kids creating music, uh, having fun was amazing, was amazing. And I actually think that in spite of the name of the band, it was a beautiful initiation into a punk. So from punk and hardcore, we get in initiated into this really worldwide thing. You meet friends from all over the world as, as we are. Uh, it does something more though. It introduces you to ideas, mm. straight edge, veganism. Um, how has what you learned in punk and hardcore and the ideas that you've learned and that you've incorporated in your life, how, how has that helped you form up as an adult and a professional? What punk gave me was my connection to integrity and personal integrity. Um, and I think that was something that was uh, not a given. I needed to shape it. Uh, I needed to confront it. I needed to actually question quite a lot of um, ideologies in life and, um, and differentiate what is it that um, sits well with me and what is it that I actually don't really like that much. Uh, so being in the constant dialogue and having the space to contradict and to ask questions uh, was incredible. That was the freedom that punk really offered. You know, mind you that um, I was coming from uh, a very obscure part in Poland uh, in the time when we, we actually call it a, a post-communistic era. So there was no freedom. There was no space for questioning the reality or questioning status quo, which the government uh, implied onto the society. So punk told me that, yes, you do have this ability. You can question the reality. And not only that, you can actually shape it. And that was an explosion of creative empowerment. Because out of that place, you do have this moment when you can say to yourself, I'm in charge. If there is one thing professionally that you bring into punk, or it doesn't have to be one thing, but anything that you bring into punk professionally that's still part of your process now, what would it be? Hmm. Not being afraid to step onto the side of an outcast. Hmm. I think that is something that comes to mind initially. Uh, if I would sit with this question a bit longer, probably we would we would find other answers. But um, when a patient comes to my consulting room and sits in front of me, I do see that there is a wounded part of themselves which they may not necessarily identify as outcast, but something like that operates within their psyche. Uh, and it's not necessarily um, anything bad or good, but to be able to differentiate that part of somebody's life and to see how it can help them navigate. Because being an outcast helped me to navigate. 
you can actually build connections from that place uh, and integrated connections from that place because you are more in charge. All right, so as we're heading towards the, the end of the interview here, we're gonna end with the crucial three. These are three questions that are gonna get dramatically harder from question to question to question. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> but before we get to it, is there anything that you want to share with the audience, any ideas that you wanna talk on, any questions you wanna ask me? I will have questions to ask you. Mm -hmm because that's what makes conversation alive. So it's not just an interview, we're having a chat. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen each other for uh, a period of time and I can see your development and I feel so proud. Oh, thank you. It's great. Thanks. You know, that's you, to, have, to have people like that in your life and to see how they are um, willing uh, to, to share and to speak what their journey uh, may be. Uh, is that's that's a beauty so i may have questions okay yeah Go ahead. So, so we're going to turn the interview into a, a dialogue yeah sure okay what do you do uh in moments of your personal transition when you know that you can uh show up to your clients uh in a specific way but deep within your soul you feel that you're aching so how do I manage myself? How do I manage myself when I'm aching, even though what I do is such a like in-person kind of thing? Yeah. How do I handle it? I can I can separate what I'm doing at the time from what how I'm feeling, and I'm really good at that. So when I've gone even through the most difficult periods of my life, I've always worked full time, yeah. more than full time, and been able to be totally locked in. And uh, something that either I have developed or I, it was a gift or it's kind of both is I can completely focus on someone else, mm -hmm. spend an hour, two hours, three hours, a full day just really working through things. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as we're done, I can turn that off and not carry it with me. But then then go into my own stuff and be like, oh, back to this thing. Then this is actually the moment I am so interested in. Um, when you are able to separate but then you are also having consciousness that there is healing that you have to do. There is a part of yourself that you have to attend to. What happens then? Something I do now that I didn't do before is I, I talk about it. And well, it's funny because like, you know, anyone who knows me would probably say, well, you have no problem talking, but I do have a huge problem talking. Mm -hmm. I am really good at communicating and creating moments kind of setting the tone for everyone i am terrible with letting people in and knowing them letting them know what who i really am the who i really am is the biggest one that i'd say there's very few people who know me who know I, who i really am and mm. because um, i've always had this kind of fence up around that and uh, i have gotten very good at talking about what's going on for me and the primary person i speak with is my my partner monica um, but I've never had a partner before who I felt I could be really open with. Um, and that's not to criti criticize anyone that I've, that I've been with before. Uh, we were just at different points in our lives. Maybe I'm just more open now to being that. Uh, but I speak with Monica about everything, every single thing. There's nothing I don't talk to Monica about. But I'm also very open with my friends. And I've, I've really tightened my friend circle down. Mm -hmm. And again, not to speak, uh, not a negative um, commentary on anyone who I've known in my life. It's that I've really 
boiled things down to here are my friends, here are my people, here's my family, both my real family and my chosen family. And I just talk and I will talk to Monica about everything, but I'll also talk to my best friend, Dave Larson, my, my other uh, really close friend, one of my other best friends, uh, Trey McCarthy. I'll talk to my friend, Mike, who, who helps us with the podcast. So I talk and I do that more. And instead of the way I used to do things is I'd medicate things with events. I'd go on tour, I'd write a record or I'd buy stuff, you know, like I was constantly doing things now and that I'd medicate myself a lot through exercise. Like I, you know, like exercise, I got to exercise. Now I talk through things and then add in some exercise as well. That's, that's how I handle my stuff. I also eat a lot, but eat like, not like, not like uh, eat my feelings, but like, I like a good meal like a healthy, good meal. That brings us to another question. Um, where is the difference between uh, personal growth and personal development and what you can do in the relationship? So together with somebody else, with another. Well, everything I've done before up to this point has all been personal growth. So like when I, this might sound, I don't, I don't know if it sounds terrible. So I'm, I'm 49 now. I've never really been, I've never felt this level of investment in a relationship where I, I'm willing to grow with someone. Mm. It's almost more like, it's probably the first time in my life where I've been like, oh yeah, this is who I'm going to be with forever. Mm. And it's not that I didn't think that before, but I think the, the evolution of who I was at the time, it's like what it means to be with someone when at that point I was like 25 or 26 was different than what it's to me, to me to be now. Um, so the personal growth, growth I've, or the growth I've always pursued before was always just my own growth mm -hmm. and it only served myself where the growth now that I, I pursue is still some like definite personal growth, but it's also in service of my family. Mm -hmm. And it's gone from a totally like just focusing on myself to focusing on the, the people that I love and that I, I want to be there for. Oh, that's beautiful. It's weird though. It's weird that I'm like 49 and like that it started coming to me about four years ago. And it might just be a life change, um, whatever, whatever it is. But I'd say that probably all change I'd go th gone through before was really just like self-focused on, mm -hmm. on what I wanted and where I wanted to go, where now almost all of it is directed in, on being a better person for my family. And relational space is the straightforward information about how we project. So you're meeting uh, your loved ones in this really uh, sensitive, transferential space. And if you can see how your projection works and, um, and, and pull them back, um, that's actually um, a beautiful growing process, which you can give to yourself. To see projections is a gift. Totally. Mm. So what else you got? What other questions you got for me? Okay. Uh, you are a parent. Mm -hmm. And you were and still are hardcore punk kid. Mm -hmm. How do you want to transfer your legacy into the next generation? And whether you see yourself uh, as someone who may influence the next generation uh, in one way or another, in, what, in one form or, or the other? The most important thing for, for all of our kids, uh, because you know, Monica came to our relationship with two wonderful, uh, two wonderful children and then 
uh, I, I brought Leora with me. So we have a blended family with three kids. Here's my goal. I always want, ki- I always want our kids to feel that um, art and culture are like, you know, they're connected to each other. Mm-hmm. And that loving whatever band that you love has this rich cultural history behind it and like learning about stuff like kind of going down that like rabbit hole of like where did this band come from what's it connected to that's one of the coolest ways that you can learn about how to express yourself and how when people are expressing themselves they're just encouraging other expression i don't care what our kids listen to and like what like where they land with those things but i really care that they feel they can express themselves and they value other people's expression. That's probably the biggest thing. I totally care about vegetarian and veganism though. That's the other thing. Uh, I want our kids to, to really understand the concept of mercy, um, mercy for animals. And what I mean by that is like, I love straight edge, like straight edge is cool, but I don't care if anyone's straight edge, whatever. I like that the idea is out there. People can do what they want. People will choose to be sober pretty naturally, I think. And while I really reject alcohol and drug culture, um, I think that people kind of like water finds its own level with that. And I like that the choice exists. But I think veganism and vegetarianism, specifically veganism, is an ultra crucial thing because of how um, suffering is so normalized by the food industry. And the idea, like, you know how like cartoon cows, like cartoon cows selling steak. It's like, that's like, that's the craziest thing. And... I don't want anyone to, I don't want my kids to ever think that to fall for that trick that like some dancing cartoon cow is, is a cool thing because that's just a trick to avoid the idea of suffering. Um, human beings have ultimate power on this planet. We can destroy anything. We can do whatever we want. You could go out today. You could find some place where they have whatever animal and you can say, I would like that animal butchered for me. The insanity of how powerful human beings are and how every single choice that they make could have such catastrophic impact on the lives of so many things without even really thinking about it is like the power of a God. And encouraging our kids to understand the power that they have in every action, but the concept of mercy, how giving mercy is such a simple thing. For someone who's a meat eater, just eat meat less or think about how your meat is made or any of those things. For someone who's vegetarian, consider going vegan. Like for vegans, like think about like how, um, how you source your products, but also think about how you talk to people about veganism and don't be a jerk about it. Like the concept of mercy and power is something that I am super passionate about for our kids, but also for people talking about in general because the cartoon cow represents something that is so linked to the, some of the most destructive things. I'd say some of the darkest parts of the human experience. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, ultra important to me. And how you are um, model that for children? Because one thing is to approach um, uh, an adult mind and completely different aspect of the discourse is when you are approaching a mind of a child mm-hmm. who is so um, very, um, dependent on how you are um, getting the message across. Mm-hmm. How do you phrase that? How do you explain the concept of mercy to a child? So I'll get to the mercy piece in a sec. When we speak with uh, Leora, who's our youngest, we talk about um, the inherent right that every being should have to its own life mm-hmm. and to live how it wants to live. So, you know, like she's little kid she wants to like grab at the dogs and she wants to like you know 
Yeah, it's very natural for yeah, them. Totally. She wants to like poke an ant, like of all, all of those things. So we just talk about um, the like that sacred thing of someone's life and their their right to live their life. We've talked we talked about that since she was very very little, and she's still at the point where she wants to like you know do the thing to the thing. But she's really good at listening to us now about it and like being gentle with creatures. So we talk about that now. The the concept of mercy. We haven't gotten there to yet because I think she's, I don't know, I don't know if we're ready to talk about people who, it's not the people who don't have mercy because they're cruel, mm -hmm. but the people who wouldn't even think that it's not merciful. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like the idea, like animals were put here by God to be our food. To crack into that conversation, because like that, that's then not a conversation about mercy with someone. It's about like divine right. And it's like. The, the depth of how much I want to avoid that conversation just in general is out there. So we're, we haven't gotten there with her yet, but I do think when we get there, it's that um, one of the things we do talk about is like everyone's different. Everyone has the right to how they, how they want to walk on this earth. And this is what we do and what we don't say, because she has started to say when she sees people eating meat, like for at a restaurant, she'll go, ew, we'll have to be like, no, no, no. Like, but it's, in, it's incredible to observe how naturally it comes for children. So Zofia is vegan. She's been vegan since birth. But I had within her uh, friend circle, because she's now bringing her mates home, uh, and she is also influencing her friends. So it's not only my relationship and what I transmit onto my child, but how she is um, operating within her own uh, friend friendship groups. And it's really wonderful to see. I remember um, I, this was just uh, right on, after pandemic. Uh, one of her friends started to chase after pigeon. And it was just such a simple moment and such a, a, a simple observation of how this child was longing for a connection with an animal. Um, and just to actually notice that, that they do have a natural connection to the natural world, because they are part of it, they come from it. It's, it's innate. And something happens with the way we are um, developed, uh, raised. Um, you know, um, you can you can apply so many different definitions onto what factors do we meet in our life, which are shaping our mindset, the way we think, the way we think about uh, what is the function of the animal in our life. Um, you know, once you will go back to the origin, which is the first meeting um, the child has with an animal, they almost know what to do. We don't have to tell them. And my, um, my approach to veganism and my approach to raising Zofia in such way was to always give her a lead because this natural connection is so innate in children. Mm -hmm. And just to notice that, that they can do it. Uh, and they do have the sense of what is actually righteousness within, uh, within nature. You know, they, they are part of that nature. Why would, I, why would I harm something that is also part of me? 
you know, for them, um, uh, it's not a state of merger. This is something I really want to make uh, clear. Uh, but they are coming from this uh, place in development, which we call original wholeness. Um, in um, the developmental stages, we call it a, a Euroboric phase, when they belong to the reality um, which animals belong to, uh, plants belong to. Uh, nature is an expression of that. And out of that um, space, they are also differentiating into the human uh, ego form and the consciousness comes from that. So, you know, it's not really about derooting them from, um, from that connection, but to preserve that connection. It's a very difficult thing to do because we were also derooted ourselves. We needed to reshape the way we think about this connection, uh, reclaim this connection, uh, recalibrate ourselves with this connection. Mm. Children has it. Mm. They have it. It's given. I could go on and on about this. I, I love what you're saying. Uh, you know, one of the things I I try not to do and I'm really working on is to start just pontificating from my soapbox about this stuff <laughs> because you're taught it'd be really easy to go from here. All I'd say is everybody, you know, like think about it. Just think just think about it. Okay, let's head let's head towards the, the crucial three. Ready to go? Ready to go. I'm okay. not sure if I'm ready to go. I'm not ready to go, <laughs> okay. but let's go. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll start we'll start easy. If you were to pick one band, and it doesn't have to be a band that you've ever even seen, but if you were to pick one band where there was Patricia before, but then Patricia afterwards, the one band that created a kind of sea change in you. Sunny Day Real Estate. Wow. Maybe verbal assault, but that's the second thought. Sunny Day Real Estate. What is it about Sunny Day Real Estate? Depth. 100%. Okay, you ready for question number two? Yeah. What have you learned about yourself through your work as a union analyst that you wouldn't have, wouldn't have learned about yourself had you taken any other career? That I do have a shadow and that it's also important and a vital part of who I am. So I don't have to split myself from it. I can be with it. This next, last question, which you're knocking these out of the park. These don't seem that hard for you. <laughs> well, it is hard. <laughs> All right. This last question is a two-parter. Uh-huh. Um, what's something in your life, it could be personal or professional, did you find about yourself that you wanted to change and that you've worked on and have been successful with, so you're not still working on it? So what's something that you've managed to identify about yourself, you wanted to change and have been successful about changing it? giving myself an opportunity for being with my own, own personal freedom. I never had a connection to that before. Uh, we were speaking about defenses. To differentiate my defenses and to actually understand how I can operate within myself with the sense of freedom that is actually at the center of my creativity my creation, my decision-making process, the way I envision life in front of myself, ahead of myself, the personality I want to build, the sense of freedom and the connection that I actually do have this right. Amazing. All right, part two of the question. 
what's one what's one thing you've identified about yourself that you want to change mm-hmm. but you're still working on you haven't gotten there yet uh i do have um a volcano in me which is part of my shadow work as well and and how to be with heated energy uh which can serve me because uh, it's an intense energy without necessarily uh, harming others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can be with my own internal volcano uh, without destroying. Mm-hmm. We've been speaking about fear, uh, how we create, how we destroy, uh, how we manage that two powerful forces within us, uh, creativity, and destruction, they are part of the same axis. And you really need to sometimes position yourself. Am I going slightly to the side of creativity or am I going to the side of destructiveness? Self-destructiveness, destructiveness to others. Mm-hmm. How am I keeping my shit together? When I sometimes may want to explode because I'm sitting on something so very hot. So I think that's a work in progress and perhaps forever, I don't know. It's an axis, as I said. So um, at times um, you need to distract in order to bring yourself farther in the development or farther onto a next uh, stage on the journey. Um, but I think this is something that you have to hold within your awareness. What power you are given, you are giving to your own destructiveness. Because we can destroy. You, you were saying just a moment ago how the power complex. What happens if we tap onto this negative side of the power complex because we think that we can eat animal or destroy Mm. and how to manage that uh, relationship with our own creative part and our own destructive part Mm. that's the work in progress all right so you want to add anything in before we close off i think i'm good all right this was an amazing interview amazing time this last question was really full on (laughs) as advertised uh listen you are someone i am so proud to call a friend Uh, i have so much love and appreciation for you and also you're just like sitting here talking to you i'm like god damn this is like a like really intellectual person here like i really like had to be all in in this conversation i really appreciate it it's so incredible because actually um you know there's there's quite a huge full-on topics we've been talking about on the intellectual level uh but i am an intuitive feeling type Totally. I'm not a thinker. Wow, you crush <laughs> it today. All right, everyone. So that's it. Uh, I hope you got as much out of this as I did. Thank you so much. Thank I you for having it. me. You bet. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time. I'm a Ram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. One step.